2: I'm a pinball wizard, there has to be a twist A pinball wizard's got such a supple wrist Take it, Jake! How do you think he does it? I don't know
3: what (laughs) makes him so good Ain't got no distractions. Don't hear no buzzes. Oh wait, I'm sorry. Yeah, no wait. We're doing a comedy. He's on
2: the spectrum, is why. Welcome
3: to. He had traumatic childhood. He's (laughs) psychosomatically deaf and blind, and then he does acid with the creepy lady. The musical really has not that much to do with pinball. All things considered, I'm your and I'm your pinball bruiser.
2: (laughs) All right, you're the tilt, tilt, uh, uh, tilt bruiser. Welcome to our podcast on pinball. I'm so excited to be doing this one. I think this was a me request episode because I love pinball and I just feel like it's a fascinating uh, amusement that has really uh, survived the test of time in a way that many amusements don't. And still now with the new boom of barcades and this, that, and the other, there's always at least a few tables, if not several. And, it's also something I grew up with in a and and I hold dear to me. It's the only is it called olfactory sense it's the only like sense memory that I have. so I'll just start with my gush. I uh had uh my my grandparents who have since passed away on my father's side uh we would go visit them all the time as they they lived in charlotte where i grew up so you know i was always there and they had a really a night a pretty cool house and in that house there was like a sunroom, and it was like oh i just want to recreate this for myself if when as soon as i have a house somewhere um hopefully maybe even in the southeast where um, it had a jukebox with just old blues and country albums, like a old-school jukebox, suit. You know, the little record pops up and everything, right? It had a pool table and chairs around it, and it had a pinball table. A pinball table, by the way, that I still have not been able to locate. I've been trying to figure out, like... How to look it up. Um, so, any of you sleuths out there, it was like kind of a ballroom dancing theme, but like old school, like Victorian era, like the big high Marge hair, and like it was like these fancy nobles, like kind of uh, theme. And uh, it, w- it was orange and green, like 60s kind of style, orange and green. Did it have
3: the uh, wedge head or was it like flat? Do you remember? like? I
2: can't remember that. I will say I'm pretty sure it did not have a digital screen. It didn't have It had a, the reels. Like, I think it had the reels like it's that old school. And I'm smelling it right now. So that's the other thing. I That's the only thing I have this with. Every time I see a pinball table or think about pinball, or start talking about it, I smell that pinball table. And it's the weirdest thing, and it's the only thing that I have that with. But I literally smell it. It's this, like, iron, dusty, irony kind of smell. You know what I mean? I don't know exactly how to describe it. But um, I so very much so grew up, like enjoying pinball, uh, taking it for granted that I had a pinball table that I could just play all the time. My aunt also had two different pinball tables in her really cool basement. We didn't visit her quite as much, but again, it was always the shit to go to her house and run down into the basement and play with those pinball machines. And, So it just it's definitely something that's that's always I've always had a fondness for because of that. I've never been like this super into it aficionado. Honestly, I I learned a lot about like the more popular tables more so this week than I ever have before. You know, it's not something I ever necessarily sought out to play. But uh, it's just always been something I've definitely enjoyed. If, If there's a pinball table nearby and I have a little time, I'll definitely throw a couple quarters in. And last night, we met up with a bunch of friends at this barcade in L.A. called 82. I looked it up, and it seemed like that was one of the stronger barcades when it came to pinball tables. It has a whole room just for pinball machines and i and it has some bangers attack from mars medieval madness theater of magic a uh, newer tables like that dope deadpool table was there the godzilla uh table that just came out was there uh and uh even even some old old school 70s era ones there was the taxi one and um, the bil- that Billiards one as well. I mean, there's a bunch of Billiards-themed pinball tables, but it's, see, that one had a picture of it in some of the research I did, so I think it's maybe a more popular one. It had Whirlwind, where if you're doing well, the fan blows on you. Uh, it was great. And we're going to talk about some of the, the more prominent designers that created some of these tables. Um, and by the way, Jake, I now have a favorite table and it is medieval madness you know uh, i think you just, just love watching those little plastic ramparts go giggly giggly googly when you hit the it's got great toys it's got great flow it's got a lot of things i like but i think at the end of the day and i think a lot of people feel this way you know, it just is the table that I seem to do the best at naturally. You know, is that a so Steve got... Ritchie?
3: Is that a Steve Ritchie one? No, that is,
2: is it. Steve Ritchie. Hold on, I can or tell it could, you really or is it quick. Is a Pat Lawler? No, no, no. It is actually Brian Eddy, who also oh, did it. Oh yeah, who yeah, also yeah. did Attack from Mars as well, which was also there and is also a banger pinball table. Um, So, so I I just had so much fun researching this and I'm so glad it gave me an excuse to meet up with some really good friends. Henry and Natalie came out, Mike Lawrence. Friend of
3: the, friend of of the show, Friend of the show, literally.
2: Yeah, yeah, like a big part of this show's history even uh, since Nerd of Mouth was predated this podcast on the last podcast network and yeah, just uh, had so much fun, and uh, and shout-outs to Amber as well. You know, it was really cool, too, talking to Amber, who really loves pinball, and uh, came out to meet us, and she's not a gamer. And she even said, like, you know, video games, I always just felt like they were too far away for me. They were too in their own world and too constricting and, you know, this, that, and the other. But the tactileness of pinball, she could really connect with and loved that And and said, you know, she would just pump quarters into machines, especially back at the Creek in the cave, where we used to record these podcasts. There was a lot of, uh, they, they decided to kind of tr- d- double down on the pinball mm-hmm. craze resurgence in the 2010s. And so, uh, at one point there was some really, I, t- again, talk about taking it for granted. Didn't realize that that wizard of Oz t- table was as, you know, y- fat, awesome and interesting and mm-hmm. unique as it was kind of bringing back, uh, Uh, pinball popularity in the 2010s via Jersey Jack. We'll talk about it. They also had what the Lord of the Rings there. They had a bunch of great ones that I feel like um, in hindsight, I'm like, oh shit, I really should have like appreciated that access more than I did. And honestly, last night I came home a bit, a pretty buzzed and just sat there and was just like, damn, I fucking loved that. I had such a fun time with more of a focus on pinball. I also got my ass beat by Mike Lawrence in street fighter two. We played other video games, uh, for sure, but I was like, damn, I want to get back and play some more pinball now because I just, I focused on it more and got a little bit more into the nuance of it and the flow of it and the rules of each table, and it definitely had a bit of a click moment that just made me kind of want to get more into the scene, and there is a scene now. There's so much uh, going on in the competitive circuit, and the you know there are people who are just into pinball. Something I saw... At the Creek in the Cave, back when it was in um, Long Island City, uh, you know, as as those tables got more popular and whatnot, and all of a sudden they were hosting competitions, and there were people who took pinball very seriously, and we'll get into the history of it, how it relates to skilled play, but for the longest time, I always felt like it was just kind of this more on the luck side of gaming, right? And then you come to find out there's so much technique, so much skill, and uh, yeah. It's very interesting.
3: Well, that's the that's the beauty of pinball is on a basic level, on a core level, it is an amusement device. It is a form of entertainment. Uh, you are stuck in a public place and need to kill anywhere from five to 40 minutes. And there's this blinking machine that will just let you just be by yourself at a bar, at a movie theater, at a bowling alley, anywhere where you're just like, shit, I'm waiting for friends or shit. I need to, like, kill some time. And you can have zero knowledge and still have an insanely fun time. Or you can, yeah, look at the instructions, figure out the rule set, make your way up to the wizard mode, earn those extra balls, get that free game. And it is this level of skill. But this electric, mechanical, wondrous device that is at this amazing kind of middle point where games go from... Uh, the analog world to the virtual world. It's yeah. this perfect bridge to the point where things about early video games are directly related to the fact that it is these pinball manufacturers that are first producing these arcade machines. Why does Mario have three lives? Because you have three pi- balls when you put a quarter in a pinball machine. Mm. It all kind of like is this rudimentary sense of play where for the first time after the rise of pinball, you don't need to be an athlete to excel. You don't need to have like a years of chess strategy. You can just, it's like at once skill, but also impulse and also entertaining just visually, auditorily, sensorily. There's this, it's this incredible moment and this incredible uh,
2: just object through which the human soul can express itself, and in fact, uh, there have been studies that show that the uh, healthier you are, the worse you will be at pinball. And you, it is uh, actually wait, really? <laughs> no, I was okay. Listen, I'm just going to say, <laughs> the more slovenly and, and disgusting that uh, you are, the more cigarettes you smoke and cheeseburgers you eat on a daily basis, actually improves your pinball abilities. So, it's I, okay, perfect. all right,
3: all right. This is this, all right. This is the grand. This is uh, this is uh this is thesis statement number one. the the beautiful tragedy of pinball is that uh, from its inception, you could be a lonely weirdo at the malt shop without a girl <laughs> in a poodle skirt and still feel like a winner. thanks to pinball. <laughs>
2: And my uh, thesis point number two is far less dark and unrelated, but like many things, but pinball really exemplifies it. You know, the evolution of technology is really ha- uh, so deeply connected to the evolution of pinball and every surge that happens in popularity for pinball is connected to some new um, improvement in tech. And, uh, you know, I mean, like the microchip or whatever, whatever the micropro... What is what is the word for? Whatever that... Microprocessor, is. Microprocessor the solid state area. The com- out you know in the 70s creates this whole new boom you know i mean before that flippers just the flipper being invented and connected to an electric charge uh completely creates this massive boom for for pinball and then more recently in the 2010s they started to connect like the great shit from the 70s when it comes to all the mini toys and by the way, toys are those, you know, anything in a pinball play field that is like a prop or like, you know, like the Theater magic Magic uh, box, right? Or the castle in uh, Medieval Madness, you know, that is considered a toy uh, in the lingo. When Thing gr- uh,
3: in the Adams Family pinball machine yes. grabs your little uh, ball with its magnet hand. And drops it somewhere else. That is a yeah, toy.
2: That is a toy. So they connected the the f- fantastic toys that were created all through the, especially in the 90s, um, with the more modern these more modern LCD screens on the backboard. Uh, the backboard, right? Or the um, back glass. Oh, I'm already getting my back glass and uh, just created these amazing newer tables that are so fun to play. And so, and also like the theming, like, I feel like they also improved even on the theming Mm -hmm. of the 90s tables, like the 90s tables. You've got like weird stuff, like fucking, um, you know, CSI, maybe that was more in the two thousands, but you've got just stuff that was like, uh, maybe not as fun as as themes as Batman 66, which plays on the Adam West Mm. Batman show. And like, just so many cool, fun, inventive... You know, the Deadpool table is, like, so fucking Deadpool. Like, in every inch of it, it just screams Deadpool in its humor, and it's, uh, it, you know, the play style and every... The giant, ridiculous katana that's in the play field is uh, hilarious and great. So, yeah, I just um, love the evolution of this amusement, of this game, and uh, the evolution of the, you know... The creative aspect of this game is so interesting and fun to check out to the point where, you know, if you're really into this, then you. Probably have a favorite designer of tables that you love and will always want to see what what they're coming out with next, you know, because there's a lot of them are still in the game. The guys from the 90s, especially, uh, you know, now are creating stuff for Stern and Jersey Jack and still putting really cool tables out there into the wild. You know, it's it's a fun time to be into pinball, I think, largely thanks to. Bringing arcades back to what they were initially sort of about, which is essentially the barcade Mm -hmm. era that we're in right now. That was when pinball was its most fun back in like the 70s, you know, because it was connected to hanging out with friends at an establishment, having drinks, being, you know, being social or antisocial, as Jake uh, puts it. And uh, yeah, I just, I love it. I love it. I'm so happy we did this episode um, or we're doing this episode rather. I guess we're in it right now, but I'm so happy I got to do the research for this all week. I I just had so much fun learning about the history of pinball.
3: So, Holden, where are we starting this journey? At uh, the Great Depression or Bagatelle? Bagatelle, baby! (laughs) Let's travel
2: back to the 19th century. Before pinball, there was the Bagatelle Table, a game derived from pool and consisted of a slightly inclined wooden table with randomly placed holes on one end, a side slot where one would hit the ball with a pool stick, uh, which would push the ball around a curve like you see in most pinball machines and into the play field. But the play field just consisted of essentially a bunch of nails mm-hmm. uh, hammered into the table so the ball would ricochet around on those. Like
3: a Plinko on like the Price Plinko, right, with completely. little uh, divots and places for the balls to
2: land. And then there would be a score written underneath those landing spots so wherever the ball landed that would be your score.
3: Yeah, basically your only input was how hard you were going to push the little stick that bumped the balls up over the curve.
2: That's it. No flippers, no bumpers, no slingshots, none of that. I mean, we are talking basic as hell. And though it isn't completely clear where this game came from, historians point to the French, specifically the brother of King Louis XVI, who in 1777 hosted a party at his home called the Chateau Bagatelle. He had a building put up specifically to house his gaming tables, and that is where Bagatelle apparently first gained its popularity, which spread from the French aristocracy to the French military, which is how the game most most likely spread to the Americas during the Revolutionary War.
3: Can you imagine like a guy in a powdered wig just in lit by candlelight, just watching a little ball fall down pins and like <clears> a <throat> courtly queen is like, Young Jacques, Young Jacques, please, you must uh, join us for croissants. And he's like, not now, mazer. I am, how <laughs> you say, a gaming. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and he's just eating an entire whole baguette. He's just like, yeah. yeah, yeah, just ridiculous. So yeah, so In 1918, the word bagatelle was defined in the dictionary as, quote, a popular game played on a table seven feet long and 21 inches wide in which nine balls were shot into various holes surrounded by wooden pegs affixed to the table. Before that in 1871, an English immigrant named Montague Redgrave out of Cincinnati applied for mm, a patent. That's a tasty name. Montague Redgrave, <laughs> he had he was born in Slacks. <laughs> he <laughs> He also invented the glove. <laughs> he was like the fun thing about our show is you never know what's actually true none of everything what I said might have just been a lie up to this point a a cruel joke played on the listener if this is your first episode you're listening to which it might be because pinball would probably be a good starting point for this series Uh, but regardless the Montague Redgrave the English immigrant he applied for a patent for quote the improved game of Bagatelle which introduced a spring loaded plunger that one could pull to shoot the ball rather than use Using a pull cue. He also added bell domes that would ring when the ball would go into a hole, and changed the balls to smaller marble mm. sized. It used to literally be like cue ball, just mm-hmm. like pool, pool ball-shaped, uh sized,
3: right? Uh, this is important. A uh because the bells introduced the kind of uh sound feedback loop, where yeah. now it is a more sensorily uh engaging process, and the enclosed spring in the plunger means that you can just slap a big thing of glass on top and you can basically put it on a tabletop. You can put it at a bar. You can add a coin slot to it. All of a sudden, the bagatelle experience, instead of something bespoke like a billiards table is now can, is a fully enclosed discrete item
2: yeah those last couple things you mentioned by the way were um, uh, the addition of a man named Charles Young out of Pennsylvania who applied for a patent in 1892 called quote the coin game board which added the glass cover and a self-operated coin machine before that one would purchase balls from the establishment to use on the tables like a game of pool in a lot of places and if you got a good enough score you could win stuff like drinks and cigarettes and this is is the uh, also the beginnings of how pinball would be associated heavily initially with gambling, which is going to be a huge part of its early history. And by associated,
3: you mean it was gambling.
2: <laughs> it may or may not have fully been a just a different type of slot machine, essentially for quite a long time. Uh, so it's not till the 1930s that we really get to what we now call pinball. Traditionally.
3: Flashback. It's the Great Depression. The stock market's in the shitter. Everybody's eating a single bean with a knife and fork on a trash can lid.
2: I drank shit water every morning for breakfast. they're all all right? Yeah, it's a bad Americans time. Americans
3: are looking for a, a, a any sort of distraction to make them uh, sublimate the human misery that is their
2: waking life. And so- I'm boiling shoes over here for lunch, ain't it? I don't know why they have British... Would they have British accents? I don't even know why they have... I mean, if talk you're
3: to. a wretch, you know, the accent <laughs> just comes.
2: <laughs> I'm a talking bat.
3: I got rabies. Americans are looking for a distraction. They're looking for anything to numb the pain of existence. They need something... Uh, also establishment owners uh, don't want to pay people to actually run games like a carnival barker would you know who needs yeah, it's all that setup, all that overhead I need something that I can just uh, not look at that'll take care of itself. And manufacturers are like, I need anything someone is willing to spend money on. And patrons are like, I only have a penny to my name.
2: So there is a company called the Bingo Novelty Company who contracts a different company called D. Gottlieb and Company, major player. We're going to be... seeing a lot from them in this early part of pinball's history. They get a game out called Bingo. Uh, D Gottlieb is the one who actually manufactures the machine. I believe Bingo Novelty Company is essentially like the publisher. It was a game with the spring launcher, glass cover but no flippers still at this point and it is more akin to a skee-ball table if you want to look up pictures of it there's various slots a ball could fall into that was associated with different scores depending on where the hole was located like we've had but just a bit more of an evolution of that concept Released in 1931, also made by David Gottlieb and company, was a game called Baffle Ball. Mm. This was the first commercially successful game of this sort, with over 50,000 machines made, and it turned Gottlieb into the first big pinball company in history.
3: Fun story. Around the same time, there was a salesman who sold the Baffle Ball uh, games named Raymond Maloney. Indeed, Also in the Chicago area who had a brilliant idea to get this, also sell Baffle Ball, but with a streamlined <laughs> manufacturing process that would
2: be cheaper to produce and allow him to keep more of the profits from it. Because he was frustrated. He, he he wasn't given enough access to enough tables. Like people, there was such a high demand. So his reaction to that was like, well then I'll fucking make a bunch of tables because these guys ain't doing it for me. So he founds Lion Manufacturing, and he makes his own game called Ballyhoo, which was named after a popular magazine at the time. I don't know if you see where this is going, but there's a company in the future uh, uh, called Bally, uh, and that this is the origins of that. This game featured a larger playing field, 10 different pockets, uh, which made it a more challenging game. And it was a huge hit. And eventually, Maloney changed the name of his company to Bally because the game was so successful and he wanted to honor that first game, Ballyhoo, with, uh, with the name of the company. Um,
3: so we're still not there, right? No electricity, no lights, no nothing.
0: With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com Active Cash.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So.
2: And by the way, the just a plunger, no flippers thing, it does make it a game of chance and luck in a huge way. There's a little bit of nuance with the, you know, pulling the, or the plunger rather, with pulling the launcher, you know, the spring-loaded launcher to shoot the ball. You could do a little bit with that, but not enough to make it not totally like akin to a slot machine in terms of where the ball is going to land.
3: Weirdly enough, one of the earliest uh, things that you associate with modern pinball that was brought in was the tilt sensor. Ah yes. Several mm-hmm. of these early uh, bagatelle s games uh, used a mechanism where uh, a silver one of these silver balls was placed on a pedestal in a shallow kind of indent, and if the player who was in theory playing for cigarettes and beer or any sort of other prizes that would technically not be gambling but have a monetary value greater than the money you put into the machine. If they tilted the machine, the ball would fall off the pedestal and it wouldn't get reset until you put another coin in. And thus uh,
2: it kept people honest. But of course they would prioritize that in a full on gambling machine, right? They would prioritize anti-cheat mechanisms over let's say a flipper or something like that uh, the first game that this was featured in was a game called advance It was v- invented by a man named harry williams who would go on to found the williams manufacturing company eight years later uh, most tilt mechanisms are referred to as a pendulum switch and consist of a plumb bob inside a ring which will sense if the tables being moved when it touches that ring um, and the other way you can do this is with the slam tilt, which consists of leaf switches that detect a slam when they touch each other. Uh, so those those are the two major ways uh, that that tilt mechanisms exist in games, and actually not super altered from this initial invention in even modern machines to my knowledge this was a back in 1935 i will say in 1933 electricity was first introduced to machines with a battery leading to an automatic scoring mechanism and the first sounds in a pinball machine via electromagnetic chimes bells and buzzers so not like as heavy as let's say you know bumpers as we know them now slingshot uh slingshots as we know them now drop targets that mm-hmm. kind of stuff they di- they didn't have that connected to electricity but sounds and the scoreboard were st- were getting that development in the early Also in 1935 was the introduction of back glass that featured lighted scoring, which makes sense if they had electricity running by in 1933. And in 1937, Bally put out their bumper pinball machine, which was the first to feature coil bumpers. So we're starting to get there by the end of the thirties. And uh, by the early third, 1930s, over 145 companies were making pinball machines largely based in Illinois. Uh, However, with such fierce competition only, only 14 companies were still in the game by the mid 30s. So it was definitely like a bit of a gold rush early on and then petered out and today you have like two companies making <laughs> tables. It's like kind of crazy how dwindled it has gotten over time. All right, let's and uh, then the war, Jake. <laughs> Oh, God, I guess they didn't have machine guns. Did they have machine guns? Yeah. Oh, Lord, I'm shot in the guts of me, sweet Lord God. I'm Kurt Vonnegut, and I'm going to write some really good books after this. So will I. I'm John Tolkien, and I also write some very interesting
1: books based off of this one.
3: Hey, finally, we can see what these Nazis were up to in Poland. Oh, God, (laughs) no. Oh, my
1: Lord in heaven.
2: So, yeah, for a while, all these machines, um, they were even uh, taking apart pinball machines to use the different materials for the war effort. The pinball, uh, this is the first time pinball just kind of goes away for a while. This will not be the last time pinball kind of just. Goes away for a while, but uh, after World War II is where we when we get to the what is referred to as the golden age of pinball, largely due to the introduction of flippers in 1947 by the D. Gottlieb Company. This is first utilized in a table called Humpty Dumpty. I I hope if you're like at your job or chilling at your desk or something, uh, have some fun. Look up these tables while we describe them. And especially Humpty Dumpty, it's so fascinating to see how the evolution of these things occur. Because in that initial Humpty Dumpty game, the the flippers are so tiny (laughs) and weirdly placed like all over the table But still, they're facing the wrong way. They're They're facing the wrong
3: way. They're going up and down the sides of the table. And they're so puny because they were using uh, AC current, which is horrifically inefficient for uh, solenoids and electric motors.
2: So these flippers, though, still, they, they can keep the ball in play longer. They can add this layer of skill to the game. Uh, however, they were not enhanced electronically. Therefore, there were three pairs of them all throughout the table that you would have to use in order to get them all the way back up to the top. Uh, they were, j- as Jake said, just very tiny, very, very like oddly placed and oriented. And so, it's not until the first big, honestly, like the first big influencer when it comes to the pinball table, uh, comes oh, in.
3: One thing about uh, the Humpty Dumpty machine, which I find fascinating, is that uh, designer Harry Mabs. Talked about how all he really intended with the flippers was just to have a new design of bumper. Just kind of, uh, mm. just, oh, you hit it, and then it just flings it automatically. Right. And while he was uh, troubleshooting the wiring on his prototype, uh, he just manually hit the flippers on his own and was like, hey, <laughs> hey, this is, oh, shit. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit, it's <is> really fun. <laughs> and- mm-hmm uh Gottlieb ended up producing a whole line of fairy tale based machines with these new flippers uh there's like a Cinderella there's an Alice in Wonderland they all had the exact same layout as Humpty Dumpty
2: but it really was Steve Cordak who we have to thank for the modern pinball table as we know it he would uh take the flippers he would attach them to, to a direct current power supply and first introduces them in the game triple action. And he would just have one set of flippers at the very bottom of the table, which of course, and, and reoriented them as we know them facing inwards mm-hmm. and, and slightly down. And that is the the how we get to the modern pinball table, essentially, as we know it in its basic level. So it was, uh, as I said, it was budgetary reasons, but also CORDIC was trying to innovate, trying to not be like everyone else. He said, they were building Humpty Dumpty with six flippers, and when the show came in January, like the big trade show for pinball, in January 1948, there were about eight other companies building games, and every one of them copied Humpty Dumpty. Either two flippers on a side, four flippers on side, or six flippers on side. I went ahead and put two only at bottom and made the game, which topped the show, and and at the same time made a reputation for me so the flippers w- were actually um, again outward facing until the game just 21 oh okay so he didn't orient them for uh, his initial game but in just 21 in 1950 they had the inward facing flippers and uh they were still very far apart so it's actually not until the game spot bowler also in 1950 where they finally pushed the flippers closer together um, with just that little extra space that's about a little wider than the ball itself uh, in between them. And there you have what, what you know we consider the, the traditional pinball table at that point by the 50s. In
3: the 50s and the 60s, you have to understand there is no computers at any point. Everything from the chime box that is uh, marking off all the sounds with what's happening on the uh, play field, the reels that are keeping the score the flippers, everything is being wired by hand, by interconnected with all these unique mechanisms to keep track of everything. It's this marvel of engineering, and it requires so much work and finicky bits. Like, it is truly a uh, nightmare to, like, if you lift up the playfield and would see all the wires that are happening under the table, you would boggle the mind it is truly an insane project more complicated than basically any other piece of equipment that a modern person at the
2: time would have encountered which is honestly why video games end up totally blowing pinball away for a little while in the 80s just because they weren't so damn complicated to keep up with the maintenance You know, pinball's just what if you look into the guts of a pinball table, I mean, it is overwhelming (laughs) to say the least. What is hard to maintain about
3: a uh, ensnared rat's nest of finely uh, rooted wires on a machine that people routinely beat the shit out of? Also, you have to apply oil to the rubber on all the bumpers. Otherwise, the iron filings that bounce off the steel balls will degrade everything. Also, uh, there's light bulbs. What's hard to maintain about that?
2: (laughs) Also, there's the drop target, which was invented in 1962 and was first seen in a game called Vagabond by, again, the master Steve Kordak. Kordak said, I had an idea that if I could hit a target and it disappeared, that it would be exciting to know that you might have accomplished something unusual. And in that game, if you did hit the drop target, you got a free extra ball. He also was responsible for multi-balls, which were first introduced in a table called Beat the Clock in 1963. So this guy is really brilliant and really good at innovating and creating these new things. And honestly, like man, with the drop you know target, what? you can just Fuck create drop targets.
3: What? I, I it takes forever? I always get there's always one letter missing, and I can't hit it right. <laughs> Pop bumpers, man! Pop bumpers <laughs> all the way. Those circular little boys don't care which way you hit it; it just goes. I do love ga-gum, 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 ga-gum.
2: bumper. It's so satisfying. All right, before we get into the 70s pinball craze, Jake, which really I'm trying uh, for 10 minutes up. to hit
3: this letter A so I can spell laser <laughs> so I can get the
2: fucking jackpot. And I can't hit that
3: fucking letter A. I just want to spell laser.
2: Laser Man says, game over. Fuck you, Laser Man.
3: <laughs> Fuck you.
2: Laser Man says, I'm going to marry your fiance. <laughs> it's been a long engagement. You know what? She deserves better. <laughs> All right. So before we get into the 70s pinball craze, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the bizarre case of pinball prohibition. So, as we mentioned before, gambling heavily associated with pinball. uh, uh, That was from the very beginning. And in the early 1940s, the game is actually banned in New York City via the mayor at the time, a guy by the name of Fiorello uh, LaGuardia, which I'm sure is probably why the airport is named that, feeling it was having a negative effect on school children, claiming it was feeding on the, quote, Pockets of school children in the form of nickels and dimes given them as lunch money. And he referred to them as insidious nickel stealers, those pinball machines. So hilariously enough... Uh, he is able to get the ball rolling on the band, pun intended, largely due to the Second World War, claiming that it would be, quote, infinitely preferable that the metal in these evil contraptions be manufactured into arms and bullets, which can be used to destroy our foreign enemies.
3: What? You're telling me a politician took a seemingly innocuous but novel phenomenon that scared old people and used it and clothing <laughs> it in a greater cause just for a cheap political victory?
2: Oh, I mean, it goes even further into that with uh, he he ends up raiding. Uh, th- there were raids all over the city. This resulted in the collection of around 2,000 machines. They're destroyed with ha- sledgehammers in front of the press and dumped into the city's rivers, <laughs> which I kind of miss the days when we when that was just totally acceptable to do just dumping massive amounts of like metal and wiring and shit all into the fucking and, 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 and under the guise of like we're helping the world just by Chuck doing this. Chuck
3: Schumer like with an at fire axe <laughs> but it's just, it's just a box that just says Fortnite on it. It's just like <laughs> I'm doing my best.
2: So Milwaukee, Chicago, New Orleans and Los Angeles all followed suit and banned the machines. I will say also the uh, another part of it being related with like bad person stuff was that most of the pinball manufacturers were out of Chicago and Chicago at the time was like the most known place for like mafia mm. stuff and just really, you know, just bad, illegal Bootlegers stuff. The whole lot of them yeah. also
3: it was associated with a uh, renewed and uh, vibrant teenage freedom with the rise of the automobile, uh-huh. which allowed your uh, punk kids to go cavorting in shadowy corners of the city without supervision, which we can't have that.
2: Why can't they just stay home and smoke cigarettes with their parents? (laughs) Pinball does not become legal again in these places, shockingly, (laughs) until the 70s. Uh, In 1974, the Supreme Court finally ruled that the game was more of a game of skill than chance. And in order to prove this, the Amusement and Music Operators Association brought in a pro player at the time named Roger Sharp. In the courtroom, they brought in a pinball table... Um, Again, in this ridiculous theatrical uh, way, and he proclaims, look, there's...
3: Legendary mustache on Sharp, by the way. You got to look at this guy in his 70s ass
2: suit, just like... "Mm." A vision. And Sharp proclaims to the court, look, there's skill. Because if I pull the plunger back just right, the ball will, I hope, go down this particular lane. And fortunately, it did, so the ban was overturned. And thank goodness it was, because the 70s are a dope time for pinball. Uh, and that was probably with the help of that ban being overturned.
3: During uh, this whole time, the pinball manufacturers were actually still doing great, because in Europe where the, uh, I guess, morality of stuff like, you know, fruit machines and slot machines and just this kind of very low stakes, casual gambling was not even remotely a thing. And in a post-war kind of boom, uh, pinball was considered this like all American dream fantasy device. So all over Europe and, you know, Germany, England, France, uh, you know, they were going pinball crazy unabated. So the manufacturers were doing just fine.
2: So, you know, back before electricity coming into play, huge advancement for pinball. And then in the 70s, the big tech improvement was the introduction of the microprocessor. And that immediately changed the game for pinball. Digital displays and circuit boards were introduced first with the game Flickr, made by Bally in 1974. It has this Abbott and Costello design on the scoreboard um it still is like old school pinball like if you played it you wouldn't think it was like the new modern you know of the 70s like the new changeover but it just started it it just incorporated it first and the first solid state pinball machine was introduced in 1975 called the spirit of 76 and the first table to get major popularity was Williams's Hot Tip, released in 1977. Solid state machines could now show one score digitally Enable complex rules, and I think most importantly, because as uh, for pinball as we know it now, what makes it so fun and special for like getting past that initial stage of just trying a table, it incorporated many objectives for the player, and also digital sound effects and speech in games. The first of which was a game called Gror, Gorgar, <laughs> released by Williams in 1979, which is a badass table. I wish it was at 82 that I really wanted to play it. But Gorgar had speech. Um, uh, I believe delivered by a monster at you while you played the game. And so I think that that is the biggest thing for me that that makes pinball so spicy and fun and really like makes it so interesting once you get past that initial stage of just like, ah, fuck it, I'll just play a little pinball for a little bit. Once you get into it now, every single table has a complex set of objectives That you can go for and, you know, it it essentially just made it more like video games as we know them now, you Mm -hmm. know, a lot of them at least where, you know, okay, in order to complete this objective, I have to get it up this ramp in this certain way and then I have to do that, hit something three more times and then, you know, and I'll get all these bonus points and if i hit all these objectives, I, I can get a special mode unlocked and all this kind of stuff. And that mixed with being able to enter your name in, um, uh, as uh, you know, in terms of uh, score rankings on a given table, and be able to be seen, you know, be able to uh, rep a table like that and say, hey, I'm the best at this table at this arcade. I mean, it completely changes the nature of pinball as we know it. What
3: I never understand is like, if once you are truly locked in, into the pinball mindset because I'm still on I feel like this differentiates the pin boys and the pin men. Yes. Is 100%. Uh, looking down at a table, seeing this sea of labels and indicator lights and like you know, it's just like 3x, up ramp, uh multi-lock, and just and just yeah. can a true pinball like wizard? Look at that and know exactly what the rules are, or do they still have to read that little like block of text right by the coin slot?
2: For the first time, I did find myself reading that block of text, like for the <laughs> Deadpool table. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really affect how I was able to play quite so much. You know, I, I'm not like I don't know how to really juggle, which yeah. is when you, you know, can skillfully move the ball from one flipper to the next in order to make specific shots. I wasn't necessarily going for spe- specific shots except for Medieval Madness. I started to get pretty decent at being able to topple the castle. Uh, which is, you have to hit us, you know, hit the castle to make the drawbridge go down and then hit it into the castle to like make the castle rattle around. And I was starting to get pretty good at predictably being able to do that.
3: It's a middle level where you're like, okay, that thing's blinking now. Guess I have to hit that thing.
2: Yeah, where I'm like, okay, I know that if I, you know, yeah, exactly. I know some basics on the table of like, shit i can do to get better more points and 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 better scores but not to the point where i'm like okay i have a directive when i you know set up shop at this table i am gonna try to get the xyz and all this kind of stuff i wasn't quite there with so
3: now the machines are talking to you they're lighting up they're playing all these cool sounds they're doing all these cool light shows um, they're, you know, luring you in with the jackpot score that's going up, but it's not technically your score. You got to like master the game to get the real high scores. It's a very compelling thing. And video games are barely a blip on the surface yet. We're still at like the Magnavox Odyssey era by the late 70s. Uh-huh. So like, this is, this is a, this is, this is it. They're kings of the castle.
2: This is, yeah. The golden age was post-World War II were I guess that you would could refer to this as the silver age of pinball in the 70s but unfortunately for pinball video games do come into play starting around the late 70s space invaders is released in 1978 followed by Asteroids in 1979, and the real pinball killer was 1980s Pac-Man, along with the one-two punch of Galica right after that in 1980 and then 1981. Uh, Though Williams and Bailey, who had become the two giants of the industry by this time, wiping out all the other competitions, saw a ton of success in the mid to late 70s, that video game boom, man, it really takes its toll on them. These machines, as we mentioned, they're a lot less maintenance, And they're a huge draw for the youth. And that is the big issue for Williams and Bailey is like pinball all of a sudden is seen as like old school.
3: Fine. You don't have to have a weird greasy man come by literally every three days to fix all the jammed machines. Okay, fine. You can fit three or two or three video games in the same amount of real estate that a pinball table would cost. Okay, sure. It made less money and cost less money. Okay, sure. Uh, The best-selling pinball machine of all time sold 20,000 units, the Adams family from the early 90s, Uh, whereas Pac-Man sold over 400,000 cabinets. Oh, my God. Okay, sure. But what if, what if in response, pinball manufacturers made their machines even more complicated and expensive (laughs) to produce?
2: Yes. Well, before, before we get to the next great boom, I will say through the 80s, All the remaining pinball giants were bought up by or merged with other companies. For instance, Chicago Coin was purchased by the Stern family in 1977. They began putting out a ton of tables through the late 70s and into the early 80s. However, the arcade boom stopped this short around 83, leaving them dead in their tracks in terms of putting out new stuff until the 90s. More on that later. Bally sold off their corner of the pinball business to Williams, who used the Bally trademark on half of their new pinball releases thereafter. But still, Williams and Bally are like connected now, not competing. However, the bright side of this was that the new pinball machine makers were now tasked with being incredibly innovative and had to put out undeniably interesting new machines in order to earn a spot at the arcade, which led to some of the greatest tables ever in the new millennium. So this is the big pinball comeback. New and old players are now in the pinball game. Alvin G. and Company, who is actually David Gottlieb's son, Alvin Gottlieb, uh, founds this company. You've got Gary Stern, son of Williams' co-founder. Sam Stern founding uh, Data East Pinball with monetary help from Data East Japan. Capcom Pinball comes into the game. uh, And still you have Williams standing strong, dominating the industry. And I'm not even sure how, how did... I don't really have in my notes like... How they came back, other than like people who were fans of pinball are now adults. Mm -hmm. You know, like kids who were fan of pinball in the seventies are now grown adults. They are so accustomed, like the super fans of the of the amusement are so accustomed to different tables and and are bringing just this incredible innovation to the whole genre.
3: Well, yeah, there's a new generation of talent. There's uh, you know, people like uh, Steve Ritchie who got his start working for Atari of all places, which even with the success of Pong and everything else, was deeply involved with uh pinball. They made all these uh, super wide cabinets with all these fancy uh, electronics bits on it. But uh, he was kind of poached by Williams and started making these amazing solid state machines, including stuff like uh, the Black Knight, which came out in 1980, which was the first one to have a kind of two level playing field. You know, the thing where you go up a specific ramp and all of a sudden there's like a smaller pinball table going up and down.
2: Yeah, love
3: it. So cool. he made a ton of notable and memorable games. memorable games. Uh, Weirdly enough, his claim to fame outside of pinball is uh, he is the announcer for Mortal Kombat.
2: Hell yeah. <laughs> he also, you, the, the table you've probably played of his more, most likely is the Terminator 2 Judgment Day table, which is a total classic. He is also known as the Master of Flow. His games are the most fluid and fast in the business. It's they, just a constant, constant movement, kinetic, mm-hmm. beautiful energy in his tables.
3: The tables, yeah, the tables are now more about keeping the ball in motion, getting you up ramps, getting you more responsive. There's very little moments where you're just kind of standing there watching it just kind of tinkle around without yeah. you noticing. Uh, a huge problem with those ultra-wide tables that Atari was pushing out was that there was too much space for the ball to just kind of wander off while you're just sitting uh-huh. there waiting like for it. That uh, Again, the the idea of flow, where you're hitting ramp after ramp and things are just kind of uh, working in this zen-like state, you and the machine bonded as one, is uh, a relatively new thing because it is about the gameplay
0: terms apply learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, Reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil
2: and a big trend at this time, we already talked about Terminator 2, uh, but is definitely the licensing of major films and pop culture staples for tables. Let's talk about it. The Adams Family Machine. The still probably the most popular table, the highest selling. Yeah, it, it is uh, amazing, um, uh, fantastic. Just every every you know pinball table since then th- there have been something they pulled in terms of inspiration from the Adams Family Machine. This was designed by Patrick M. Lawler and Larry Demar, who started out as co creators of a machine called Bonsai Run, and it was advertised as being at eighty two. <laughs> and I was so sad to see that it wasn't there when I got there because I was dying to play this one. It's such a cool table. Um, this was done for Williams in 1987. It has a dual play field. It has the normal one on the horizontal table, but then you can also get it up into the back glass. Amazing! And it's a vertical uh, pinball uh, play field, which totally changes it just by sheer force of gravity. Really cool. I was hoping to play it. Definitely look it up on YouTube. It's a really, really cool uh, machine. Um, And separately they had both been creating pinball machines. Uh, Lawler did Earthshaker and Whirlwind uh, as well as the classic Funhouse. I got to play Whirlwind as well. It has the fan in it and when you hit certain things the fan will start blowing on you which is a really fun effect. Funhouse is is a great time. It has the ventriloquist dummy. Most notably, the dummy will mock you and talk shit and like talk about the game as you're playing it, which is a really fun thing. I
3: think that's uh that's uh Ed Boon from uh Mortal Kombat also. Because it is, also, just yeah, yeah. It is uh, those midway guys working on the yeah. arcade machines that ended up becoming NetherRealm. We're all part, it's all based in Chicago. It's all the same so guys. So funny, I think and a bunch I also
2: played some Mortal Kombat 2 uh, with Lexi last night, so it all it all comes full circle. Chicago, baby, Chicago strong. Patrick Lawler cemented his style as being referred to by players as stop and go, as the tables required players to not just send the ball up the playfield, but across the playfield as well with a mid-range third flipper. Also, uh, Whirlwind was the first pinball machine to feature Although I also have an account that says Black Knight 2000 did this, but I'll just bring it in at this point. Um, it, it, the first machine to feature a wizard mode, uh, which is a nod to Pinball Wizard from Tommy, um, the, the song we were singing at the beginning of the episode from the musical Tommy by The Who. And this was un- This is a uh, mode that most tables have now, if not all tables at this point. Uh, it is unlocked after the player completes a specific series of difficult tasks. It's essentially like the post-game or like the post-credits of a game. Uh, all of the modes on the table are unlocked. You get like extra balls. You just you. It's a way to just rack up an insane amount of points, and uh, it's definitely there for the pro players.
3: Around this time, there's also a lot of whiffs. Uh, Steve Ritchie creates a flipperless game called Hyperball. Mm-hmm in which the balls are just kind of getting shot out of like a little cannon and just bouncing all over the place. Uh, There's uh, stuff like Baby Pac-Man, which is uh, a combination arcade game with a pinball table beneath it. Once again, not what people want, more expensive and harder to maintain than just a video game. Uh, But it is this unfettered uh, innovation and competition. The tables obviously now are no longer symmetrical. There's lots of different things happening. They're adding the toys, It really is just a truly
2: insane experience. So what makes the Addams Family set apart from the rest? I have a quote from Popular Mechanics writer Seth Porges because I was also curious, like, why the Addams Family? Like, there's so many pinball tables out there, especially around this time in the 90s. Why is the Addams Family so special? Well, he said, The game featured plenty of next-gen features such as a moving mechanical hand with the thing that picked up balls an enormous number of scoring modes and new dialogue recorded by the film stars specifically for the game. But the real reason for its success was that it had great gameplay with well placed ramps and shots leading into each other. Naturally the Adams family avoided some of the all too common pratfalls of the pinball machine. The game nailed the simple things and virtually every game since has taken design cues from it. Other uh, big popular licensed uh, tables of the era were Indiana Jones the Pinball Adventure, Star Trek The Next Generation, that Twilight Zone table, oh, which I also believe dude. is Lawler. Fantastic. I was also hoping that was there last night, but it wasn't. Um, and then there are also great new IPs I've already mentioned from this era that are so fun. I played all of these last night: Theater of Magic, Medieval Madness, Attack from Mars. I mean, so fun. The toys really make it for me. That's why I love that new Wizard of Oz table because that spinning house is mm. so fucking rad. Like there's so many cool little, you know. Uh, little just fun mechanical things and and again I think that's why pinball will hopefully always survive Uh, You you continue to tack on the LCD screens and add the new technology where it can be added but I think it's just that tactile stuff in the table is so fun to watch and Just playing last night, I mean, when everything's lighting up and just blasting your eye holes with fucking, you know, sensory overload. I mean, it really is something special that most video games can't really replicate on that level.
3: Brief aside to talk about Pinball 2000, which was a kind of last gasp by uh, Bally slash Williams to revitalize the pinball machine uh, for the modern era. It used a Pepper's Ghost illusion where a monitor was <laughs> reflected off a piece of glass, kind of creating illusions and holograms above the play table that interacted with the play field in all these novel ways. Only two games were produced, Revenge from Mars and Star Wars Episode One." This was kind of, the writing was on the wall for a lot of the pinball division. They put everything they could into this game. It had amazing reviews, but unfortunately, it only sold around... 10,000 units cumulatively between the two titles, and at that point, Bally Williams was just selling way more slot machines for places like Vegas, Reno, and Atlantic City that it just wasn't uh, really profitable or even worth management's time at that point. The company having been acquired and sold and traded a million times in the years that we're talking.
2: About. So I believe this is the third downturn for pinball. By the end of 1996, Gottlieb, Capcom, and Alvin G all closed down. Data East's pinball division was acquired by Sega a little before that, leaving them and Williams as the last two companies standing in the pinball game. In 1999, Sega sold their pinball division to Gary Stern, who renamed it Stern Pinball. More on that in a little bit. Williams ended up leaving the pinball business a few years later, as you said focusing on the gambling equipment so it's really just stern pinball is the only manufacturer of new original pinball machines up until 2013 and pinball mainly just lives on in video games uh funnily enough they finally completely absorbed pinball and the the best way to play pinball for a while there was via epic pinball full tilt pinball and pro pinball all different video game series that had um you know uh, simulations mm-hmm. of classic tables that you know uh, the only those pinheads you know only those people who were just diehards could enjoy it in a more of an academic way almost more of a, a his, from a historical viewpoint that is until dude thank God for Jersey Jack goddamn is incredible you know and and brought back this whole scene it's kind of. Miraculous that one company could come in to play and just totally rebuild pinball as a popular amusement, like from the ground up. They were, uh, there were some small companies making reproductions of various machines in the 2000s, but that was about it until 2010. In 2010, there was a company called Marzaplay in Spain. They remade a machine called Canasta as New Canasta. This was actually the first game to feature an LCD screen in the back box, which for sure shadowed the resurgence of new tables in the 2010s. The movement was led by a company we just mentioned, founded in 2011 by industry veteran Jack Guarnieri. And that is Jersey Jack Pinball, Inc. Before this, Jack Guarnieri, he was an enthusiast servicing pinball machines since 75. He creates a website called pinballsales.com in 1999 this website ends up selling thousands of pinball machines mostly to the home market and jack noticed in 2010 there were less games to go around so kind of like that guy who founded lion which eventually put out which put out ballyhoo and eventually changed to bally uh, you know he is like shit we we need to sell more tables there's a demand here but i don't have any tables to sell so he creates his own company and their first table is this amazing the wizard of oz machine released in 2013 featuring a 26 inch lcd monitor in the back glass He also brought back some old standards that have been dropped since, such as a wide body size. Jack explains how he came up with the new machine. He said, basically, you take a white piece of paper and think about all the things we love about pinball. We love a lot of mechanical action where the ball interacts with things on the game. Uh, We all knew that we wanted to take new technology that exists today and that will still exist tomorrow and make a game that would be truly sensory overload, not just any light bulbs using all LEDs, RGB LEDs. You are doing the same with 2.1 audio. You have a game where you can plug headphone jacks into it and adjust the sound. You have a wide body, as you said, which was something unbelievably different. You haven't seen that since 1995, I believe. You have an LCD in the back box, and it's only that size because I couldn't get one bigger. And you have an LCD actually on the play field also. So you have the first game with two LCDs on it as well. The designer of the machine was Joe Boucher, who had previously designed the popular simpsons pinball party Ooh. and south park machines and so yeah at this time he's got carte blanche on the all the industry veterans for the most part because they're all they've all been you know out of the pinball game essentially for so many years uh but still love making tables and still you know it's a, it's a definite passion for them they just didn't have the means until jersey jack came around So, you know, a lot of his hires came from his enthusiastic customer base. And that's why each machine shines with this love of the game, with this understanding of the history of pinball. Yes, they even brought back uh, Pat Lawler, um, who did Dialed In. This is a new IP based on smartphones. It's a great table. Um, the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory table is incredible, released in 2019. Their latest game's a Guns N' Roses-themed affair. I was, again, hoping that was there last night, but I think that one's a little bit harder to come by right now as they're trying to get it out the door. Um, and just incredible, you know, to, to see this improvement. I mean, man, and they're so fun. And, you know, Stern has also, you know, followed suit and started also putting out these machines with the LCD display and... It just looks great. They're so... It, you can feel the improvement over time. Mm-hmm. You can feel the influence of the 90s, of the 70s. And it all came together in this, like, really beautiful modern era of pinball that we have today. So, yeah, I wanted to do a few more uh, designer shout-outs. Uh, I wanted to talk about Brian Eddy. Uh, he did Attack on Mars and Medieval Madness he's a less prolific designer, uh did less tables, but all of his tables are fucking bangers. Uh Data East John Borg did st- stuff like the excellent Star Wars game in the 90s and 2014's The Walking Dead. Uh George Gomez did 2003's Lord of the Rings and the amazing Batman 66 table for Stern more recently. John uh Popadiuk is Popadiuk is Popadik, Uh is known for his intricate If you insist. I mean, I think it's Popadik. Hey, <laughs> He's fun at parties. Uh, he's known for his intricate play field designs. He did Theater of Magic and World Cup Soccer. Awesome toys in all of his cabinets. Uh, Greg Kimiak and Jim Patla put out some classics in the 70s for Bali, including Kimiak's Harlem Globetrotters on tour and Patla's Playboy and Space Invaders tables. Um, just... Uh, amazing players in the game. There's so many more uh, unsung heroes of pinball that have just been putting out incredible tables over several decades. And it really. We haven't even talked about the
3: artists. You know, if you are a true pinhead, you can lose yourself collecting uh, back glasses and like knowing which artist drew which horny barbarian lady on all those 70s and 80s machines. <laughs> the programmers themselves who did a lot of these, uh, who, you know, once the designers kind of built the play field, who actually made the switches and the programming work for all these machines are also their own kind of uh, celebrities in the industry. It's an insane collective of talent that made these things possible. Because they are so complicated.
2: Yeah, uh, it, it's, like, mind-blowing when you get into I mean, we could probably do an episode on, like, just the Addams Family table, Yeah, you know? And maybe we will someday. I mean, you could really, if you really break it all down, each one, especially, like, the really good ones are... So unbelievably well thought out, and uh, really based on such a knowledge of physics, and uh, you know, and amusement machines over the course of time, it's it's incredible stuff. I, I just this love is
3: pinball. One so of much. those topics that, like, having only a week to kind cr- cram all this information has been a. Like my brain is different, having (laughs) to just absorb all this information over this past week. We could do an entire podcast just about pinball and have hundreds of episodes worth of material. Yeah, and
2: I hope this gets a lot of people to call up a friend or just go solo and roll out. I'm sure there's you know, unless you're in the middle of nowhere, which totally understandable. Even if
3: you're in the middle of nowhere, there's a coin laundromat that has like
2: a tattered old uh, Elvira machine, and a lot of places now are there's full on pinball. Uh, you know establishments I, I went to a great one in uh, Asheville North Carolina uh, on a bachelor trip with my brother like the last fun thing I did before the pandemic hit and there was there's this amazing like pinball kind of museum there but you also they have beer they you I believe it's just 20 bucks and you can just free play all their various machines I wish they had had even though it's not a great uh, uh, table in terms of design they had the hilarious Hercules table which is the largest pinball table ever made and it's absurdly oh, wow. stupid You should definitely look it up. It's like this ridiculously huge Is it Kevin
3: Sorbo Hercules or just the idea? I think it's just
2: like old school. Yeah. Not, yeah. Like pre, I think it was like a 70s table probably. Okay. Uh, Yeah. It's, you know, and there's a lot of places like that. There's one in LA like that too that I want to go to. I went to, like I said, 82, which is a barcade. There's so many barcades now. And um, find the one that specializes a little bit more in pinball and just go and enjoy the shit out of that. Because, you know, there's only so many times you can beat that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles beat them up you know what I mean before uh you got to move on to something else and yeah I uh I, there's a Bari in Charlotte I don't know if it's reopened I believe it's reopening um it closed down during the pandemic that place the guy who runs that place is amazing and clearly knows his shit they had a third strike cabinet there they had you know Killer Queen but they also had an amazing pinball selection there as well just so much good stuff out there right now. I mean, definitely try to take advantage while pinball's hot again, because Lord knows it's going to have another <laughs> downturn in about three years from now, as is the course of history has proven. There is also um, a great competitive scene. Uh, the two major companies, when it comes to the competitive scene, have been the International Flipper Pinball Association, the IFPA, as well as the Professional and Amateur Pinball Association, which I believe Papa! is... Papa! I believe Papa's defense now. Oh no! I think maybe probably a product of COVID. The IFPA started up in the early 90s then fell off around 95 like everything else with pinball. Then came back in the late 2000s and now organizes championships at the state, national, and international levels each year. They also created the World Pinball Player Rankings which is the official ranking system for pro players. Uh, Another host of pinball competitions is the PAPA like I said which was founded in the mid 80s and in the 2000s was run by a nonprofit organization called the Replay Foundation. Unfortunately, it looks like they are selling off their tables and are in the oh. process. Of shutting down. Prove me wrong, please, somebody. I hope that's wrong because, um, you know, it's a beautiful sport. It's a, uh, should I can I say sport hobby? It's a beautiful thing, and I'm glad that there's a pro scene. It just goes to show that this is definitely more than just some kind of flim flam amusement. There's so much skill involved, and it's only getting more intricate. That that fucking Mandalorian machine is awesome. Oh, like yeah. when it comes to just all the different objectives you can do and. Um uh, you know, all, all the all the crazy ins and outs now of any given table. It's just such a fun time to be playing some pinball.
3: I mean, there's an entire ecosystem of Twitch streamers who exclusively play pinball. Yeah.
2: Like it is a vibrant, alive fan. They've done a really good job at this point of dialing in, you know, camera angles and setups to best display pinball for streaming and YouTube videos. There's so much footage out there. For different tables and what's nice too is you can look up the essentially the menu of pinball tables at a barcade usually they have it posted on their website and then you could go on youtube and go ahead and learn how the table works before you even go and then when you you know set up shop at like the star wars table or whatever it may be uh you'll you'll know maybe a little bit better what to shoot for and and you know what kind of what you're what you're trying to get with uh with each different shot and uh object. Or
3: you can do what I do and just uh bang your head against the glass and just go like, what the fuck is a midichlorian multiplier? <laughs> I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> I'm not reading that block of text in the corner. It's too tiny. My eyes can't read it.
2: That guy's too healthy to be playing that game. <laughs> he needs to eat more cheeseburgers and smoke a few more cigarettes. Uh
3: yeah. Before video games, before anything else, if you were a lonely weirdo and you needed to completely sublimate your conscious being uh, for a couple of minutes, pinball was your answer. There's a reason why it features so heavily in The Who's Tommy. It's kind of the same reason why uh, Lemmy from Motorhead always uh, traveled around the world with a fruit machine with little spinners on it. It's just for a generation that needed it most, that was an escape. That was... A place where you can excel and win and just kind of completely lose yourself in the flashing lights, the noises, and the immediacy of the flippers. You can't take your eyes off it for a second. You are just watching the numbers go up. It is an, inc- it's a near religious experience.
2: Yeah. And I love resilient stories like these, you know, stories where, They you you you, over and over again. It's like, is this the death of pinball? You know, and we've covered some other stories like these as well. Different, you know, maybe art forms or hobbies or whatever that um, just never fully go away. As much as you think you got pinball down and out, and it's and it's done, and you know, uh, you you, you 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 count it completely out. Pinball miraculously finds a way to come back, and I'm I'm just so happy that it is become so popular again I, I just think it's so cool and i especially love that like before it kind of felt like the licenses were a little bit more just based on what was extremely popular at the time now with stuff like jersey jack where they just have a love for the game dude let's do a pinball table that's themed after the 1966 adam west batman <laughs> let's do a pinball table that's 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 specifically the toho godzilla films you know and 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 not giving a fuck about like what's in the zeitgeist or like what, you know, not necessarily it needing to be like the Peter Jack's Lord of the Rings movies, or I guess in our case, right now, let's say, uh, you know, breaking bad or something like that, which would I'm sure would be a great table. It'd be great. But I just do love that now they're like, yeah, dude, do your weird ass like smartphone themed. <laughs> table just because that's what you wanted to do i feel like this is the era of the designer more than it ever has been in other words like Mm -hmm. they they have such a great respect for these guys they put out these tables and have been for the past decades um that they really seem to be letting them do what they really want to do like what what the 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 machine that they really truly want to make in terms of theme and in terms of overall design and i just think it's a really cool time to be playing pinball all right, is that it, Jake? Did we do it? That is it, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today. Game over. Game over. Star-Lord Laser just kissed your wife. God, I, I just needed to hit the A, that <laughs> fucking drop target. Yeah. No, nah, we're on, damn it. we're moving to third base. I hit the drop target for it. All <laughs> right, please, you stop manhandling. My wife is clearly attracted to you. Uh it's time to go home, honey. I don't understand why there's a man here just—it's making out with my wife based on how I'm doing on this pinball game. It would
3: be amazing, like for all the hot chicks and like snow queens and like uh, sexy ladies that were on all those pinball machines back in the day. That there's just like. One, like, really fucky dude <laughs> <one>. <laughs> That's what America wants.
2: That's what America needs. Thanks again for joining us for our episode on Pinball. Uh, if you want to follow us further, support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew for $5 a month. You enjoy weekly bonus content from Jake and I. It's a great time.
3: It's like the show. It's like the show, but there's more of it.
2: Yeah. If you're like, oh, man, I wish there was more show. You go to Patreon, and there it is. And we'll talk a little bit more about what we're currently enjoying in terms of media. We'll talk about news stories, stuff like that that you don't get on the regular episodes. So check us out, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Also, check me out, twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. I'm streaming Monday, Tuesday, Fridays. I've been streaming a little Elden Ring, which has been fun. Uh, We've got other fun, you know, the money pit on Tuesdays is a great hang with a bunch of friends. So check me out on that, twitch.tv forward slash holdenatorsho. Jake!
3: Follow me on Twitter, at BestJakeYoung. And hey, I also do a streaming thing, but it's harder to explain. (laughs) Uh, All you need to know is go to youtube.com slash puppetjared or twitch.tv slash puppetjared. And uh, the, the the main thing I've been doing right now is the cartoon dumpster on Thursday evenings. I find the most copyright derelict, bizarre cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And a group of very... Funny, very interesting people uh, watch along with me as we make jokes and gasp in horror at what we are watching. If you like this show, I believe you'll enjoy The Cartoon Dumpster over on YouTube.com slash Puppet Jared.
2: Hell yeah. And hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. Oh, before we go, April, uh,
3: take us out with the uh, Attract song from uh, Black Knight 2000, because it's got Steve Ritchie like, being like, give me your money. It's basically Laser Lord, as Holden
0: described. <laughs> Uh You got the mic. No way. Get ready
1: for battle. Give me your money.
0: Be the black knight.
2: (laughs) This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to LastPodcastNetwork.com.
0: With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at Wells com slash ActiveCash.
1: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So